Please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I love reading Christian biographies. I'm always looking for a new Christian biography because they inspire me. They remind me that others have gone before and they have lived faithful lives, sacrificial lives, uh, lives that that did not shrink back when tested. One of my favorite stories actually comes from uh, 320 AD when uh, Licinius, the emperor, commanded that all of his soldiers make a sacrifice to the gods. Forty of his soldiers, 40 of his elite troops, were Christians and they refused. And they told their commander, said, we are loyal to the emperor. We will even lay down our lives for the emperor, but we will not deny our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so their commander ordered that they be stripped and sent out onto the middle of a lake, there to freeze. Or if they were willing to deny Jesus Christ, they could come off of the lake. And he commanded other soldiers to build a fire and to, to, to set up warm baths so that anyone who wanted to deny Christ could step off of the lake and into the bath and live. So the 40 soldiers, stripped bare, stood on the lake, freezing wind whipping all around them. They huddled together and they sang hymns of praise to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one by one, their voices fell silent, and they fell asleep, and they died. But toward the end, one soldier could bear it no longer. He came off the lake, and he said, I want to live. I'm willing to deny Jesus. The remarkable thing is, as he was coming off the lake, a soldier who had witnessed this event took his place. He walked past him, taking off all of his clothes, and joined those 40 soldiers frozen on the lake and gave his life. And hear that story and you say, I want, I, want to be, I want to be that man. I want to be that courageous. Do you have courage like that in your witness for Jesus Christ? Don't you want to? I love reading stories like that because they remind me that others have walked this path and that I can too. One of my other favorite stories actually comes from the book of Acts because it's the story of the very first Christian who gave his life for Jesus Christ. It's the story of Stephen. It's an inspiring story that we're going to study this morning. It begins in chapter 6, and I want you to read with me in verse 7. It says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen will demonstrate incredible courage in his witness on this day. But his courage just didn't emerge accidentally in this moment. Stephen was prepared for this day. Stephen was prepared for this day. And this day of testing revealed the courage that was present in him and the commitment that he had to Jesus Christ. We actually hear first of Stephen earlier in chapter 6. I want you to read with me in verse 1. Now at this time... While the disciples were increasing, good things are happening in the church, but there's a problem. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So they summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Statement found approval among the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, 
Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought them before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The church is it's just exploding. Wonderful things are happening. Signs and wonders are being performed. People are trusting Christ for the very first time. They're believing in him. But even in the midst of all this growth, there's a problem internally that begins to emerge because you have different cultures inside the church. They're Hellenistic Jews, that is Jews raised outside of Israel who are deeply influenced by Greek language and culture. And then there are the native Hebrew Jews. And it's difficult for them to mix. And what's happening is there are widows among each group, but some are being neglected and some are being served. And it's a risk. It's a threat to the church. And so the apostles get together and say, well, let's solve this problem. Let's find seven men who can lead us in this effort and take care of those who have need. Stephen is one of those chosen. Notice again the the description. It says, brethren, verse 3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Stephen, a man full of grace and full of power. Do you see the pattern in Stephen's life? He's full. His life is full with Jesus Christ. And it's not as if he has no other interest. Stephen is almost certainly a man who is married. He has children. He has a job to attend to. But there is only one person who is on the absolute center throne of his life, and it is Jesus Christ. All other competing allegiances have been removed. And Jesus reigns supreme. And so Stephen is ready for this moment of testing because Jesus is first in his life. He's prepared. So he doesn't have to have this enormous internal debate when the moment of testing comes up because he's thought beforehand about Jesus and Jesus being first. The church historian Eusebius was similarly tested. The emperor told him, threatened him with seizure of his property and imprisonment and torture and even death. And Eusebius responded like this. He said, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. Eusebius said, I'm ready for anything that you can throw at me because all competing allegiances have been set aside, so I am prepared. Eusebius was prepared. Stephen was prepared. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Let me put this in modern terms for you. We have a great tradition at Texas A&M University. It's called the 12th man. Student body is the 12th man. And so at football games like we had yesterday, the student body stands, right? We stand throughout the game. Following the example of E. King Gill, who was ready, he came out of the stands, he got on the sideline, all dressed up, suited, ready to go in in case the coach needed him. And so now the student body stands, right? Any students here stand yesterday for the game? Anybody? All right, I want you to stand up right now. If you stood yesterday, I want you to go ahead and stand up. Okay, don't be bashful, just stand up. Okay, what I'm asking for you to do this morning is I want you to stay standing throughout my sermon just in case I need you to come in. I want you to be prepared. I'm just kidding. You can sit down. Go ahead and sit down. I'm kidding. I'm, there you go. Here's the deal. I'm, I'm not going to ask any of you to come up and preach. You know why? Because you're not prepared. <laughs> I'm probably the only one who's prepared this morning. And actually, I went to the game last night. And I left early because I wasn't fully prepared. 
Coach Sumlin's not going to call you into the game. You know why? Because you're not prepared. I love the symbolism, and you should always stand throughout the entire game, except when the other team's band plays, then we sit. That's fine, but you're not going to get called in. The depth chart is amazing at Texas A&M University, and all of those young men are prepared. They've been practicing for months. They've been running out in the heat. They've been in the weight room. They've been learning the plays. They are ready. And it doesn't matter if they're first string, second string, third string, or fourth string. They are longing for that opportunity to go in because they've prepared for that moment. Are you prepared? So you can say to yourself, yes, I'm ready. But if you haven't been deep in the word and deep in prayer and deep in fellowship with other believers, when that moment of testing comes, you will not be prepared. Stephen was prepared because his life was full. He's full of the spirit, full of power, full of grace, full of faith. He was ready. And so when Stephen spoke, it brought incredible conviction And challenged everyone around him. Read with me again chapter 6 and verse 9. But some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Stephen's a man of conviction. And people of conviction make other people feel uncomfortable. It's been said that a conviction is not something that you hold, but something that holds you. It's something that grips you so tightly that no matter what the fear that might arise internally or the pressure and threats that might come upon you externally, you will not release that conviction. Stephen is a man of conviction. And as a result, he challenges Those around him. Stephen didn't wake up that morning looking for a fight, but the fight found him because this is who he was. A man of deep conviction. There's a story told of of Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, church father. And he went to battle against Arius. So Athanasius said, Jesus is the son of God. He's the eternally existing son of God in human flesh. And Arius said, no, he's not. He's a secondary being he's created. He is not the eternal son of God. He's not co-equal with the father. And so Athanasius and Arius battled back and forth. And Athanasius suffered for his convictions. He was banished five times. At one point, the emperor Theodosius called him in. He said, Athanasius, do you not realize that the whole world is against you? And Athanasius responded, then I am against the whole world. I said, you go, Athanasius. I want to be like that. He was prepared. And as a result, when he spoke, it challenged the people around him. In particular, we're told in verse 9, it is the men who are from the synagogue of the freedmen. It's a synagogue populated by men who were descendants of slaves, probably families who were enslaved. When Pompey came in and he crushed 
the Jewish rebellion in 63 BC. Many, many Jewish families were enslaved. These are probably descendants who had become free. And as a result of their historic animosity with Rome, particularly in their family, and the fact that they had been enslaved, they were zealous for Israel. They were zealous for the law. They were zealous for the temple. They were extremely passionate about defending all things Israel. And what they heard in Stephen was a threat, and they misunderstood the words that he was speaking. Notice their accusations, verse 13. says they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. He's speaking against the temple, he's speaking against the law. We're told by Luke, they really didn't understand what Stephen was saying. Because he wasn't speaking against the holy place. He was speaking for Jesus Christ as the greater temple. Remember, as Jesus said, tear down this temple and three days later, it will be raised again. But he wasn't talking about the earthly temple. He's talking about his physical body because the earthly temple was just a symbol of a greater temple to come. It was a symbol of the presence of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't speak against the law. He said, in fact, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to live so righteously that I obey the law completely and have the right to offer a sacrifice for all sins committed under the law. But they feel angry and they're threatened by Stephen. And so they oppose him because they're under conviction. Verse 15 says, Then fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So these men call in the elders, they call in the rulers, they call in everyone who's a part of the Sanhedrin or the ruling council. Stephen is standing in front of the most powerful men in his nation and they look at him and they see his face like the face of an angel. And unfortunately for those of us who are raised in America, we we think of angels and the image that comes to our mind is chubby babies sitting on a cloud with harps, right? That's what emerges in our minds or we think precious moments or whatever, but that is not what angels are like anywhere in the Bible. Angels are, are glorious, they are amazingly beautiful, but they are also fierce and frightening creatures. They are warriors. And so when they look at Stephen, they see something probably reminiscent of what they had heard about Moses. When he went into the very presence of God and he saw a, an image of the glory of God and when he came out, his face was radiant, it was glowing, it was overwhelming and they said, that's beautiful, but can you cover it up? It's frightening. Stephen has their attention. Stephen has their attention. He begins to speak. Of all that we know about Stephen, we know this. As he speaks, Stephen was a preacher. The way that we know that is Stephen was asked a really simple question. It was actually a yes-no question, and he gave a sermon. Sometimes my kids go, oh, maybe we shouldn't ask Dad, right? (laughs) So Stephen launches. He actually gives the longest sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. And I will tell you, up until this last week, I mean, I'd read this many times, but it never struck me. I always thought, well, he's just recounting the history of Israel, and then he's telling them that they're responsible for rejecting Jesus. But this week, I was reading through his sermon, and I realized, no, this is a very tightly crafted message. And the point of his message is this. God has faithfully borne witness to his presence and his power among his people. Throughout all of Israel's history, God has faithfully borne witness to his presence and power among his people. And time after time after time, Israel has rejected God's witness. So he starts with Abraham. 
the founder of the nation of Israel, the one who received promises from God. I'll give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. Abraham went into the land. He didn't own all the land, but he entered the land. Miraculously, he was given a seed. He was given a child, Isaac, when he was 100 and Sarah was 90. God began to bear witness. I made a promise. I will fulfill the promise. And his family was blessed. It began to grow. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the son of promise, had 12 sons. The family was growing, but the family was an absolute mess. I mean, you think you come from a messed up family? Man, read Genesis, right? The definition of dysfunction in a family is Genesis. These boys, are, they, they're fighting with one another. They're not a blessing to the people of the land. They're a curse to the people of the land. They're an absolute mess. Ten of the brothers, they hate one brother, Joseph, so much that they sell him into slavery and they tell their dad he died. He was torn by an animal. He's dead. The father's grieving, weeping, and they don't alleviate his grief. They continue the lie for decades. For decades, the family lives with that lie. But God uses that lie to rescue his people. God is faithful. He allows Joseph to emerge as a ruler in Egypt. So when famine hits the land of Canaan, God's people, God's chosen family is able to leave Canaan and come down to Egypt and be provided for. And Joseph can say later, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because God's witness is that he will always keep his promise. So he sent a deliverer. That's me. That family started as 75 people in Egypt and then it grew and it grew and it grew and it became several million. So large was this people group living inside of Egypt that they became a threat to the Egyptians. The Egyptians said, we better enslave these people. And God's people cried out and God faithfully sent a deliverer. His name was Moses. Read with me chapter seven, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, An angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, have heard their groans, and I've come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. So God sends Moses to Egypt. He faithfully rescues his people, brings them through the wilderness, and gives them Joshua. So they enter the promised land, and God miraculously, through these Jews who are not warriors conquers all of their enemies and gives them blessing in the promised land so much so that they are fruitful and they multiply and the nation grows and they have protection from their enemies because God sends them a king after his own heart. His name is David. David loves God and he wants to build a temple for God. God says, no, you're a man of bloodshed, but your son will build a temple because you are the seed through whom the blessing promised to Abraham will come and you will have a son and he will build me a temple. But that temple will simply be a witness to my faithfulness of my presence and power among you. Just as I gave you a tabernacle through the wilderness. So as you wandered, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was a, literally Luke says, or Stephen says, a tabernacle of testimony, a tabernacle of witness. So the temple will be a temple of witness. Verse 48 it says, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my rest? Was it not my hand which made all these things? In other words, the prophet says, the temple, just like the tabernacle, is just a testimony of something greater to come. God has borne witness time after time after time. And what have you done with his witness? Verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to Moses, but they repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And so they built a golden calf, which later they destroyed, but then they worshipped the gods of Egypt and the gods of the lands around. And as God gave testimony after testimony after testimony of his presence and power, They rejected the witness, and Stephen said, this is the pattern of our nation, this is the pattern of your lives. And so now I bear witness to something greater, and it is Jesus Christ, whom you have rejected. He sums up his message here in verse 51. And I said maybe he wasn't waking up looking for a fight, but the end of the sermon (laughs) sounds like maybe he is. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. He says, you're accusing me of breaking the law, but you and your ancestors have continuously broken, broken the law because the law points to the greater deliverer, that is Jesus Christ, and you have said no. And notice their response, verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They kept on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Can you imagine? They hear Stephen and they just they start gnashing their teeth. Their anger is overwhelming. They have to cover their ears and they rush out and they grab him, drag him out of the city and begin throwing stones at his body. Now, I will confess, I don't always get the reaction I want from my sermons. But I go, wow, <laughs> I don't want any of that. And sometimes we're, we're kind of subdued and like, gosh, just one amen, I could use more of those. Thank you. It wasn't that subtle, was it? Sometimes uh, people laugh, not with me, but at me. I get that. And sometimes I actually have people come up afterwards and they disagree and they want to argue about a certain point. But, oh my goodness, if you begin to gnash your teeth and rushed at the stage, I don't know how I would respond. They grab Stephen and they stone him. Stone him. That, that's a... That's a terrible way to die. It doesn't happen all at once. Stone's breaking his body, finally knocking him unconscious. 
been building to this point. The church is expanding. The church is exploding. The leadership of the nation feels threatened. So initially they just make an inquiry. They say, tell us by whose power and what name are you doing these miracles? And what do the apostles do? They bear witness to Jesus. And then they're threatened. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they said, we cannot stop. We cannot stop telling what we've seen and we've heard. They're threatened with imprisonment. Finally, they are imprisoned. And what do they do as they come out of prison? They go straight back to the temple and they bear witness. And then they're flogged and beaten. And what do they do? Don't speak anymore as the lashes come down. And they walk out and they sing praises and they rejoice that they were worthy to suffer. And they bear witness. They're men of conviction. Nothing will stop them. It's building to this point. And finally, Stephen pays the ultimate price and he gives his life. And men and women, I would tell you, here's the principle. If you live for Jesus Christ, you will eventually suffer for your faith. If you live with a bold, courageous witness and you come out publicly in your faith for Jesus Christ, you will suffer persecution. In fact, the Greek word for witness is the word from which we get literally martyr. That is one who holds a conviction so tightly that they are willing to give any sacrifice, make any sacrifice to maintain their testimony for Jesus Christ. And so frequently in the history of the church, witnesses have become martyrs. And that is the testimony of the New Testament. If you choose to live faithfully for Jesus Christ at some point in your life, you will suffer. Peter said it like this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. If the world hated Jesus, the world will also hate you. John said the same thing. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Peter said it. John said it. Paul said it. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It might be the loss of your reputation. It might be that you don't receive a promotion. It could get even more intense in this country. You might not give your life in this country, but you know, perhaps you might. If you read the story about the shooting in Oregon this past week, the gunman came in and he asked some of the people, are you a Christian? If they said yes, he shot them. And we view that, we go, well, that's Oregon. <laughs> right? That's Oregon. It's an isolated incident. But the fact is, throughout the world right now, throughout the world, Christians are suffering and dying for their faith. In North Africa and other areas of Africa, in the Middle East, in North Korea, in China, Christians are suffering loss of property, loss of job, loss of freedom, imprisonment, some even to the point of death. That's normal. In fact, in the 20th century, Alone, just the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than in all other centuries combined. Now, we're just at the beginning of the 21st century, and already persecution of Christians has been on the rise. That's normal. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Is it worth the risk to you? You better think ahead of time about that moment. Stephen was prepared. Stephen was ready to sacrifice all because he had already chosen to give all. I want you to read with me again, chapter 7, verse 54. And ask yourself this question, question, is it worth the sacrifice? 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And this is a remarkable thing because everywhere in the New Testament, after the ascension of Jesus, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. He's not standing. He's seated. Why? Well, four times in the book of Hebrews, we're told Jesus is seated. Why? Jesus is a great high priest and he's finished his work. Levitical priests had to go into the temple and they had to make sacrifices and they had to go on a rotation because it was exhausting work because people kept sinning. And so they made sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and they carried the carcasses of bloody animals and they burned them and they carried fuel for the fire and they carried incense and they carried holy bread and they just worked and worked and worked. It was a hard job because there was a lot of sin. They were constantly working because the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove the debt of sin fully and finally. But then Jesus came in and offered his blood in the very holy of holies in the presence of God in heaven. And God said, it's enough. And Jesus said, it is finished. It was one sacrifice for all sins, for all times. And when God accepted it, he said, Jesus, please have a seat. You're done. So Jesus sat. Everywhere in the New Testament, Jesus is seated. But now, as Stephen is sacrificing his life to remain courageous in his witness, Jesus Christ stands to welcome Stephen, the first Christian who would give his life for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He stands and he says, welcome. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I do a lot of weddings. And at weddings, the mother of the bride has a really important role. It's a simple role, but it's an important role. As the doors open and the bride begins to come in, mother of the bride sits right here, and it's her job just to stand. And when she stands, what does everybody else do? They stand, because she's saying, all right, let's get the party started. Everybody stand. Let's go, right? So she stands, everybody stands, and the whole thing gets going, because the bride is coming in. When Jesus Christ stands in the presence of the Father, what happens? I promise you no angels are seated. Jesus is standing and he's up. Well, we better stand too. All of heaven stands up. Jesus stands up. All of the hosts of heaven stand up to welcome Stephen. Well done. As Jesus said, if you proclaim my name before men, I will proclaim your name before my father who is in heaven. Father, father, Stephen is coming. Welcome. Wouldn't you love to live for that day? To see heaven's opened up and Jesus Christ standing to welcome you in. You know, heaven loves a celebration. Heaven loves a celebration. Every time a sinner finds Jesus and believes, heaven starts a party. Right? There's a celebration. There's joy and rejoicing. Every time a believer in Jesus Christ sacrifices for the witness of Jesus Christ, heaven celebrates. What that means is heaven is always having a party. It's like, don't sit down yet. Wait, oh, there's another, right? Let's keep going. Let's have a, that's what heaven is doing. Right now at this very moment, people around the world are trusting Christ. Right now at this moment, people around the world are giving their lives for Jesus Christ or their fortunes or their reputations for Christ. So what is heaven doing at this moment? It's celebrating. And heaven is waiting for us to do the same. Is it worth the sacrifice? Absolutely. Absolutely. Read with me chapter 8, verse 1. Saul, who would become Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and they made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Wow. What happens? The church is persecuted. Church is growing. The the leadership wants to crush that growth. And so they, they oppress the people. They warn them. They threaten them. They put them in jail. They flog them. Finally, they put Stephen to death. The church is under persecution. And what does the church do? The church explodes because it continues to bear witness. You know, the greatest threat to the church is not persecution. The greatest threat to the church is actually prosperity. Because when we become prosperous, we become content and complacent and we begin looking inwardly rather than outwardly to bearing witness for Jesus Christ throughout the world. Wherever the church has been persecuted in the past, the church has exploded in growth. When the church responds properly to persecution, not in anger, but in further witness. When we are cursed and oppressed and reproached, we bless. We bear witness for Jesus Christ and the church grows And it grows and it grows. Men and women, I just want to remind us that we are not alone and that we are not the first to experience persecution. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 11. What more shall I say then? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, Shut the mouths of lions. Quench the power of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But others were tortured. Not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom this world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary, and you will not lose heart. Men and women, we need courage. Courage comes from the word for heart. We need heart. We need courage. We need to be encouraged by one another, because when you are faithful in your witness to Jesus Christ, it brings courage into my heart. And when I'm faithful, it brings courage into your heart. Because we will suffer if we choose to live for the name of Jesus Christ. To bear witness faithfully to him. Notice again, chapter 7. Stephen's response. Chapter 7, verse 59. 
It says, they continued on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who does that sound like? Well, it's Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verse 60, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that sound like? Well, that's Jesus. Father, do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. How could Stephen do this? Stoning's a horrible way to die. How, How could the stones are hitting his body and breaking his bones? And yet he chooses to forgive. How is this possible? Stephen was a man full of grace, right? A man who had experienced the fullness of the love and unconditional forgiveness that he could know only through Jesus Christ, a man full of grace. And he was a man who was standing in between two worlds, so to speak. His body was still on earth, although it was breaking and crumbling, and yet he was gazing into heaven and he was seeing the arms of Jesus opening wide for him and the host of heaven standing with Jesus, welcoming in, well done, good and faithful servant. If I could have the men go back to prepare for communion. And as you go back, I want to, I want to share a quote with you uh, from Tertullian. A very famous quote. He said this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is, when, when we give testimony and hold nothing back, we encourage the church to move on. Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But I want to read to you the larger context of this statement by Tertullian. He said this. You say we are just another spin-off of philosophy. Well, why don't you persecute your philosophers then when they say the gods are fake? Perhaps it is because the name philosopher does not drive out demons like Christian does. We're not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You frustrate your own purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do, for we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out why we have died, they want to join us. So as the men come forward and give us the bread, which represents the body of Jesus Christ, and the cup, which represents the blood of Christ poured out for us, I want you just to meditate for a moment on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and meditate on the sacrifice that he calls us to in gratitude to him. And we'll all receive the elements and we'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take them together. Let's just take a few moments silently before the Lord. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Same way he took the cup also after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you were willing to make, even to the point of death, a cross death, a brutal death, so that we could have life and we could learn how to live. Pray that you would make us men and women who are also courageous in our witness for you. Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you 
for his sacrifice for us. And we pray through the power of your spirit that our lives would be full, be filled with faith, filled with power, filled with your spirit, filled with grace, that all competing allegiances in our hearts would be pushed aside. But in those moments of testing of our faith, that we'd be courageous and bold in our witness. We'd live for that day when we come into your presence and are welcomed by you and hear the words, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, I pray that this morning you'd send us out. And throughout this week, we would look for those moments, those opportunities to bear witness for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me encourage you this week. Look for those moments. Pray for those moments that God will give you to bear witness for Jesus. Now this morning, if there's anyone, if you want someone to pray for you, we'll have some couples up front here. Come forward. If there's maybe somebody in your life, a friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus, and you are asking for courage to share Christ with them, and have somebody come up and pray with you. Okay. Again, I, if you have a chance, send me some stories. I'd love to hear some stories about how God gives you opportunity to bear witness this week. God bless you. Have a great week.